everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Naomi. Uh, this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Nicole Neely. She is the president and founder of a great organization which was founded last year called Parents Defending Education. She's also the president of Speech First, a national campus free speech organization. And she's worked at the Independent Women's Forum, where I also have an affiliation, and the Cato Institute. And so welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we should disclose, uh, Naomi, that, that both you and I are on the advisory group for Parents Defending Education. Yeah. So we really like Nicole. <laughs> yes, we do. yes, we do. In case you needed a bigger stamp of approval. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So I think it's great to see you. And, you know, part of the reason you you know that, you know, our our podcast, Are You Kidding Me? You know, we try to focus on those situations where, it, you know, systems are supposed to be supporting kids. And yet oftentimes the actions of adults uh, go in the exact opposite direction. And as you know, for the last couple of years, certainly since the George Floyd uh, incident, there's been a lot of interest in sort of the racial makeup of, of high quality schools, uh, particularly specialized high schools. Like I'm here in New York and, you know, uh, Bill de Blasio, the former mayor was frustrated that there were only a certain number of um, black kids getting into schools like Stuyvesant, Brooklyn Tech and California. There was even a, a recent case in Virginia uh, that uh, there were too few black and Hispanic kids. So there've been these efforts to boost the concentration of black and Hispanic kids, but it seems like the well-intentioned efforts are actually backfiring. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts of what's been happening. And also just tell us a little bit about PDE uh, in these efforts to kind of uh, find different ways to achieve these outcomes. Sure. So yeah, we have been keeping an eye on this very closely. Actually, one of the first things we did when we launched PDE last year was to um, intervene in a lawsuit in New York that was trying to tear down and dismantle the city's specialized high school program. A group of activists, as you implied, felt that the specialized school program had the wrong racial makeup. They challenged the city and the state, um, asked them for a laundry list of proposed relief, which basically all boiled down to let's inject a lot more race into the decision-making process. So we came in representing six families. Uh, they're all members of PDE and argued that um, actually, no, the, the city, the program works pretty well as it is. Um, the families liked the program, wanted to apply or remain in the program under the current um, uh, admissions policies. And that, um, in fact, ingesting more race into the decision making process would be a violation both of state and federal equal protection laws. Um, which was an argument that the city and the state actually didn't want to make because they want to discriminate, quite honestly, in other settings. Um, the city and the state opposed it. They said, we can totally adequately represent the family's interests. And all the families you talked to said, not at all, not whatsoever. Um, we think this is a sue and settle. You know, as a New Yorker, that it's very much a, a hot political issue. And they were worried that they would just, that the, um, the city was kind of waiting for the courts to adjudicate this so that all the politicians could throw up their hands and say, oh, not our fault. Um, and so we were kind of able to be the skunks at the garden party in this. But I think, you know, to kind of get to the larger point, we're, we're kind of at, we're, we're waiting for the courts. We've uh, filed what is called a motion to dismiss. And so we're just kind of waiting, hopefully, for the courts to dismiss this. Um, but this or looking at what happened in Boston, at Boston Latin, out in San Francisco, at Lowell High School, um, and most recently at Thomas Jefferson in Virginia, 
yeah, this um, perception that what is needed is the government to put its thumb on its scale in the name of equity. And it turns out that that makes a lot of people justifiably very, very angry. And that's why we're starting to see these policies struck down. I think many of us are kind of holding our breath to see what the Supreme Court does in the Harvard slash um, University of North Carolina Students for Fair Admissions case, um, because the idea that injecting more race into these processes is justifiable and moot, um, is, or is justifiable, is is um, is, is problematic. Um, I would argue it's unconstitutional, and I also don't think it's been producing the um, the promised benefits either. And so I think there's there's it's kind of problematic up and down. But it's the kind of thing where we've seen a lot of activists reach out to us who have never been politically involved, but they're very angry about what they perceive as a war on merit and a war on excellence. And and is is the underlying belief that there are all these uh, kids that are prepared, but are being uh, racially discriminated against in terms of getting into these schools? Yes, um, that has come up over and over again. Definitely in New York, um, it's one thing that the city has thrown out there that it's just a bunch of rich kids who pay $3,000 for Kaplan test prep. Um, the statistics actually don't bear that out. In New York City, actually, 60% of Asian students who are admitted to the specialized school program are at or below the poverty line. It's actually a higher percentage than Hispanic students in the program. Um, the same accusation was thrown around in Thomas Jefferson in Virginia. Um, again, these are mostly immigrant families, um, many of whom just devote a, you know, a, a large amount of their finite income to test prep or to schooling. And so families have made choices, but it is not that the programs have been designed to exclude students. So I think a lot of people have been struck by just how blunt the decision was by the federal judge on Friday in the Thomas Jefferson case, and you know are kind of hoping that the Supreme Court takes up such blunt language when they, when they rule uh, in the Harvard and UNC cases. But it was interesting because he just said that uh, the new rules left Asian American students disproportionately deprived of a level playing field. And I think there's been so much kind of, you know, gobbledygook around this conversation where, you know, there's just this assumption that, you know, we can take these slots and give them to kids who are not qualified and it it won't really hurt anyone. It's just going to make the whole thing more diverse. And there's a, just a lack of acknowledgement that they're, you know, these schools, just like Harvard, you know, kind of there's a fixed pie here. And who are you taking those um, slots away from? And in, in more and more cases, it's Asian students. So, you know, were, were you surprised by how kind of blunt the language was? And do you think that that is the um, the thing that's sort of carrying a lot of the public opinion now, this feeling that, you know, the, these a lot of these kids who are working very hard, whose families come from, you know, not very wealthy backgrounds at all are getting screwed, you know, in this idea that we need, quote unquote, equity. Yeah, um, like you said, it was, it was a great decision by Judge Hilton. Uh, I think everybody's kind of waiting to see what happens if the district ends up appealing to the Fourth Circuit or not. But um, yeah, he he noted that it was this was racial balancing that was really at the core of the plan to overhaul admissions. And he noted that um, this fell under strict scrutiny, which means that, you know, they, the courts have to look at everything really, really seriously. The stuff that came out in discovery was appalling. I mean, the text messages and the emails back and yeah. forth between board members and staff. But that being said, the, the standard is that impermissible racial intent needs only to be a motivating factor. And definitely all the emails, all the text messages show that this was very much the intent. But is it, um, you know, you asked about, is, is it actually helping people? And one thing that um, my coworker, Asra Nomani, who is a leader of the Coalition for TJ, which were, were the plaintiffs in this organization, in the, in the lawsuit represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation. And she wrote an article recently and noted that in school district enrollment figures for Fairfax County that just um, were made public, 
Um, last year, under the new admissions process, when they rejiggered everything, eight students actually dropped out, eight freshmen, um, over a five-month period in, um, in the new plan, whereas the previous year, only one student had dropped out. And so um, even if we're getting students into programs, are they properly prepared to succeed? And I think that's a real question that, you know, some people, you know, people are uncomfortable asking, but I think it's a fair thing. Are we setting people up for success or are we putting them into a place where they're not supported and then they're set up to fail? And is that a worse outcome than, than before even? That is always to me the, the why we don't deal with the reality. If the issue is that there's all these talented minority kids that are being racially discriminated against why not build more great high schools as opposed to trying to rejigger? Or if the issue is that there aren't enough prepared kids who are taking these tests, then let's focus on building more choice within the K-8 to system to improve uh, uh, high-quality schools. Why do you think the folks so focused on equity seem to just not be interested in those two more longer-term solutions, but immediately just go to, well, let's just, this is a zero-sum game, so we got to take, uh, you know, take uh, seats away from kids who clearly are deserving of those seats. Yeah, it's a great question. And it is, I mean, you want, we want students to thrive. We want students to be in an environment where they feel supported, where they're pursuing things that they enjoy. You know, one question I've been uh, discussing with my coworkers is, I was asked in a federal society um, podcast whether um, students have spoken up if they, you know, how they feel about the admissions change and families that were, that wanted the admissions change, who really liked what Thomas Jefferson ended up doing. They have had a few student spokespeople. I think that the families, the Coalition for TJ that um, opposed the admissions change um, made a decision early on to not like, frankly, weaponize students. Um, they felt it was a little bit untoward to kind of go down a Greta Thunberg road. And I think, you know, the other, so the flip, the flip side of that is, you know, when you discuss these issues publicly, I mean, you end up being kind of unfairly targeted as you're, you know, called names, being racist, et cetera. And so, I mean, us as parents defending education, of the different tips we get, we have a tip line. I'd say 90, 98, 99% of people who send us things actually, um, you know, they want to be anonymous. And so even if students you know, liked the, the system for I got in by taking the test. I want every kid who I am in a class with to be similarly serious about their education and rigorous. I don't want to be in a class project with some kid who like doesn't really want to be here, doesn't enjoy it, doesn't really get the material. They're not going to speak out against it because they're scared. And so I think that's, you know, kind of a missing voice from this. But I think we have to take into account kind of the societal factors about, you know, why students are not speaking up necessarily. Well, it's interesting that I think it's come to a head with these high schools, you know, that especially those the, the STEM focused high schools, because I think what colleges have been able to do is they've been able to get away with this whole, well, we'll we'll admit people who have different levels of qualifications, but then push kids into sort of easier majors and easier lines of study. And so it definitely affects the graduation numbers and you see that, but it's not quite as stark because, you know, what you find is that, you know, the, they, they can find alternative paths for kids who are less qualified. Whereas at a place like TJ, it's basically not possible. I mean, unless they're going to really start changing the standards in the classes, um, there's not like the easy track at TJ. So, you know, I think that's why you're seeing the higher dropout numbers initially, because you can either either you can hack it or you can't. And and I think, you know, a lot of people are worried that just under this new system, they're going to have to find ways to change those standards. Otherwise, they're going to see, you know, they would see dropout rates much higher. 
But we wanted to also, you know, talk about the the situation in San Francisco. So um, just the level of anger there, obviously, over so many things over the last year. But this shocking San Francisco school board uh, election that happened. Um, can you, t- you know, tell us a little bit about like, wh- you know, just the, the the kind of sentiments of parents across the country and why your organization seems to have gained so much steam in the last, you know, year and a half or is it a year? And a- it's only a year. It's been a year. Yeah. You know, in San Francisco, obviously, I mean, very, very blue, right? This is not like a Republican stronghold by any stretch. You know, there was, as you said, there were a lot of frustration factors in San Francisco. Um, The schools there were closed pretty much longer than anywhere else. My town, Arlington, Virginia, is another one that was closed basically all of last year. So there was real anger about that. And they spent time renaming schools. Right. Yeah. Those closures disproportionately impact working mothers. Um, low-income families, right? The people who don't have a nanny around to help with the virtual school or anything. Um, And then, yeah, as you said, they were fiddling while Rome burned. They were talking about renaming schools, that Abraham Lincoln was not good enough. I mean, you know, the Dianne Feinstein Elementary School, um, stuff like that. So I think there there was anger about that. And then also this admissions change at Lowell High School, which is another top magnet high school in the area. And so focusing on basically everything else except putting children first. And so that's why, I mean, These three school board members in San Francisco were recalled at an astonishing rate. I think one of them was at 78% of of voters. Um, And the kinds of voters who came out, I mean, a lot of first-generation Americans, almost all Democrats. So this was not some like massive right-wing conspiracy by any stretch. And the number of people who voted for the recall surpassed the numbers of people that voted in 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 the first place. Right. And so I think there is just this palpable anger at you're not representing me, you're not actually looking after our children's best interests, and you're not being responsible when people are responsive, when people raise these. I mean, this is a school board that has consistently mocked and derided their constituents. And so, you know, it's little wonder, frankly, that people are pissed off and they wanted to throw the bums out. That was that was quite shocking to me. I mean, I, I wrote an article for Education Next last year about some of this, and I listened to some of the San Francisco school board meetings, and it was just the way they talked to people and, you know, who were, you know, cut cut people off who were speaking out at the meeting. I mean, and these were all Zoom meetings. It wasn't as if, you know, the, the people had any control. They just had their mics cut off. And then you would have, uh, you know, people who were saying, uh, the, the school board members, if you dared to criticize them, they would, they would claim that, you know, you were... You you're racist, you're offending them, you're not allowed to, you know, to say such things about school board members. And I mean, it was just this, yeah, I mean, unresponsiveness is kind of the tip of the iceberg, but just this sense of we know better than you. And what do you, what are you parents, why, why are you interfering here? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, people have called what Terry McAuliffe said in the November election in, in Virginia a gap. I don't think it's a gap. I really do think there are, there's a non-zero number of politicians who really do believe we're the experts. We know what to do. We know best. We know what to teach your kids. Sit down and keep your mouth shut. And I think that is what has really provoked this strong, strong reaction from across the political spectrum. Well, we're talking about the very lefty communities that have really jumped on on board the kind of parent power movement. I mean, the fact that this the Wellesley suit was also, I think, worth talking about a little bit. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe what went on there. I mean, you were obviously, you know, very that that was a lawsuit that you guys filed uh, against uh, Wellesley kind of dividing up kids into these uh, affinity groups. And 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 parents really got upset about that, too. Yes. Um, Wellesley, Massachusetts, Boston suburb. Um, again, deep blue, navy blue. 
um, we challenged uh, two policies in federal court. Um, I initially actually had filed an OCR complaint with the Department of Education because we heard that they were holding these racially segregated affinity groups. They did one after the Atlanta shooting last year um, where they invited Asian students. Um, and the district, we found out through some emails, actually told a white teacher she couldn't attend. She wanted to attend and be supportive. They said, nope, not for you. And then a teacher also explicitly emailed a class and said, if you're a white student, you're not like, this is not for you, you can't attend. Title VI does not distinguish between who is or who is not privileged. Although that's how some people think it is, it's you may not discriminate on the basis of race, full stop. Um, and so for people to be excluded from a school-sponsored event on the basis of an immutable characteristic is unconstitutional, period. So I filed the OCR complaint, which really kind of languished, strangely, the Department of Education has not been super enthusiastic about the complaints I filed. And but it was funny because after we filed it, I actually had a lot of other families from the district reach out to me and they said, that's not all that's going on here. And so that's how we actually got to the point of filing a federal lawsuit. Um, in addition to the segregated affinity group space, um, we also found out that they had a biased speech policy, which is an issue that I have um, sued over through my higher ed organization, Speech First, for many years. Um, these are policies that schools have where there's a portal on the school website where they encourage students to report on each other um, about speech that is hateful, biased, offensive. The terms are very broad. It's kind of very much in the eye of the beholder. The reports can be made anonymously. So surprise, surprise, they're often weaponized. Um, and if you think that someone will read on you for something you say, not only do you have to tailor what you say to the most, how the most sensitive person on campus might interpret it, but also you largely don't talk about controversial issues, period, because you're scared, because you don't want to go through a bureaucratic star chamber. Wow. I mean, Nikki, it is really extraordinary what is going on across the country in, ter in terms of parent movement. I always, I often think of this, when I think of you, I think of Alexis de Tocqueville. Because <laughs> in, in 1840, I love this phrase, He he his ob observation, in the U.S., as soon as several inhabitants have taken an opinion or an idea they wish to promote in society, they seek each other out and unite together once they have made contact. From that moment, they are no longer isolated, but have become a power seen from afar whose activities serve as an example and whose words are heeded, end quote, and whose words are heeded. So do you think now that we're kind of going back to normal parents, hopefully kids are going back post-COVID, this sort of parent energy you're sort of tapping into, how does this sustain? Does this go away? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen? It's a big question. I mean, I was actually curious last year in September when a lot of the schools reopened for in-person education, if everything would kind of fizzle out, if it would just be an, oof, after a year and a half, out of sight, out of mind, all right, we're moving on. Um, and we actually found that if anything, parents were more energized and more spun up in September than they were before, because now they had no idea what was actually taking place. Um, I'm actually, I'm not able to physically enter my kids' elementary school still because of COVID. We talked to parents across the country who on a regular basis, they asked their teacher for you know, lesson plans. What are you learning? Um, we all know children do better when parents are involved. It doesn't matter what the letter is next to your name. If you know what your kid's lesson plan is, you can supplement, you can talk about things at home. Um, families are being told by district after district, file a public records request. I mean, they're not even getting the courtesy of a responsive, respectful answer back and forth. And so yeah, people will assume the worst because they see the horror stories out there. We find out through that some of the Freedom of Information Act requests we get back, that they're kind of justifiably angry in many cases. Um, and so 
one thing that we made a decision we made very early on was to not have chapters of PDE. I didn't want to have national chapters or local chapters because I wanted people to actually take ownership over their local communities. Um, I think that has more weight. I want them to have the bit in their teeth. Um, at the end of the day, they shouldn't turn to me and expect that Nikki in Arlington is going to fix all the things for all time. I want them to figure out who are their neighbors, who are the, who is their tribe, who are the people that they can talk to, that they can lean on, show up at school board meetings together, because I think that has greater weight. Um, I think I feel so many of us have focused so exclusively on the federal government for so long that we have really neglected state and local government because it's kind of boring. Um, but you know what? The other side has not. They have always been there. And that's how a lot of these policies have gotten through without people paying attention. And I think the past year and a half of the pandemic has really shown us that your state and your city matter a lot. I mean, you go between California and Florida, it's like a tale of two cities. And so um, showing up matters, being engaged matters. And it's great because last year, I feel like was sort of the year of educating people. And this year, all we get are questions of what can I do? How can I run? How can I make a difference? And so people really, I think they're realizing their own power. At the beginning of COVID when school shut down, so many people felt so disenfranchised. They're not listening to me. I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh, they don't care about me. And now it's, I can make a difference. I saw what just happened in Fairfax. I saw what happened in, in San Francisco. I can do that too. And it's that empowerment that to me, I think is going to push this through and you know, not have it fizzle out like the Tea Party did. Yeah, and there are a lot of great resources on the PD website for folks who are trying to do something in their own community. I mean, whether, you know, your your school board is discussing critical race theory or whether they're having these affinity groups or what what, you know, whatever it is, I think, you know, part of it is just making sure that parents have the right information at their fingertips so that when they go to board meetings or when they run themselves or whatever it is that they have evidence on their side to explain their positions. Yeah. And I think, you know, so many people in Washington sort of assume that everyone around the world, around the country knows how to do these things, that people know how to write a letter to the editor. They know how to, you know, get on TV and talk about stuff. And frankly, most, most people don't, and they shouldn't like, it's better to not be that way. Um, But I thought, you know, let's, let's make it easy. Let's make it kind of turnkey so that Bob in Omaha can turn around and make just, you know, affect just as much change as like politically active Ian and Naomi and Nikki can. Um, yeah. And so it's right. Like we want people to to really, you know, take ownership over their own community. I know we've talked a lot about race and critical race theory and racial balancing, but another area that seems to be emerging that's frustrating to parents is a whole area of transgender theory where parents are being left in the dark um, because schools are sort of stepping in and saying, well, kids want to be known by certain names or certain pronouns at school, but never uh, allowed for parents. What are you seeing around this kind of ideology in terms of how that's also animating parents to get involved? Yeah, this is definitely something that's heating up. Um, When we launched last year, almost everything we got in was related to race, maybe perhaps as a function kind of in the wake of all the George Floyd stuff. But this year, I'd say probably 30% of what we get in is related to gender issues. what books are being taught, how issues are being couched, what is age appropriate or not. But then also, um, yeah, what is taking place behind parents' backs? Um, We see a lot of districts across the country from New York all the way over to Washington State um, where kids are, they're being transitioned behind families' backs. Um, They're being referred to gender clinics, um, be it Planned Parenthood in California or other private clinics. Um, They're being, schools are giving out binding guides. Um, and so there's a lot that is taking place just without parental knowledge. I mean, I, I talked to a mom in upstate New York who said 
the school had two different sets of medical records and she still doesn't have access. She pulled her daughter out, but still doesn't have access even to the other set. She said, I can't get her psychological or physical care that she needs because there is just a part of her history that is missing to me. Um, and that, you know, is something that I think is, is going to continue to be a really hot issue. Um, in March last year, we filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court in a case called BLV Mahanoy, it was the swearing cheerleader case. Um, and one thing that we we kind of targeted our brief towards was this whole idea of in loco parentis, public schools acting in place of the parents. Um, I think we had like 25 citations from cases in the 1850s, and it's something that Justice Alito picked up on, um, where schools have traditionally enjoyed this special status in our society because they are standing in in place of the parents. But now we see schools that are actually acting in conflict with families. Um, they're trying to undermine families' authorities. Um, and so should schools continue to maintain this hallowed place in our society if they are actively undermining the parents and the family, which you know, there's significant and longstanding precedent that you know, that's that's the bedrock of, 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 of all of this. Um, and so I think this issue is not going away um, with Title IX, uh, the Title IX rules coming out from the Biden administration in April. Um, I think this is going to heat up because it's going to be Title IX with a gender overlay. And so this is I think this is going to kind of be the issue of 2022. I mean, on what basis does the school make that? I mean, you need a permission slip to go on a field trip to the Bronx Zoo. Right. So what what gives the school the belief that they can have a child transition without parental knowledge? I mean, a phrase that we see thrown around a lot is safety. Um, you know, this specter of there's going to be some intolerant father who beats his child when he finds out that the child is gay, transgender questioning. Um, and I think, you know, yes, those incidents occur, but I think they are isolated. And also we should not be policymaking for those or, or focused on those isolated incidents you know, by taking away the parental rights of 99.999% of parents across the country. Um, and so this is really kind of, everything has kind of gone upside down. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, there are all sorts of interesting parallels here. I mean, this is, um, you know, this this is a lot of the abortion debate. I mean, you know, whether the, the whole question of whether you should be able to, you know, get an abortion at the age of, you know, 12 without your parents' permission. I mean, you would, people would say, oh, well, you know, there are all these cases out there of the, you know, of some father who committed incest. And so we have to protect against that. And so in order to do that, we should make sure that every predator out there is able to get a 12 year old an abortion. I mean, there's a whole, you know, th there's this, the, the talk, the, the talk conversation about safety, I think you're right, Nicole, has just like expanded tremendously. I mean, even just very silly things like, or not silly things, but kind of trivial things in the medical community. Like, I mean, if I go online to one of these portals where I'm trying to like, you know, make a, a do doctor's appointment for my child, it turns out that something happens when my child turns 13 that I can't online access half their medical records. And like, I don't, I have, under, I, I've talked to doctors about this. I don't understand why this would be. And, you know, but you, 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 when you read about it, you try to understand, it's like, oh, this, you know, this is a safety issue. And we, we know that there are, you know, some, some bad actors out there. And you're like, but the, is you're right, 99.99% of parents out there, you know, want what's best for their kids and are trying to raise them. And these institutions in our society are not looking out for those kids' best interests. They're getting in the way. Yeah. That was my rant. All right. Well, <laughs> you're entitled. You're entitled to rant. You're a parent. Every once in a while. I'm not kidding you about that. Go try. I mean, I don't know how old your kids are, Ian, but but when they get to a certain age, you try to get their medical records. And this my my 11 year old was asked if she is a pansexual oh in a survey God. given by the school. I will not reveal where I am, but 
let's just put it this way. There's some inappropriate stuff going on. <laughs> well, let's say the person who asked them should also not reveal where they are right now. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, asking kids about pronouns who still believe in the tooth fairy. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, there is no, there is, you know, and, and when parents try to ask or raise those questions, you know, again, they're outed, they're called names um, yeah. and they're stigmatized. And at the end of the day, most parents just want to know what's going on. Actually, Nikki, what, what's your advice to a parent who he, who hears something like I did with my own child and and they're they're feeling alone, they're feeling, you know, what 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 would you say in addition to go in addition to going to the parents defending education website, what should that parent do? What is their power? Yeah, I mean, I feel like most of the time my coworkers and I end up, you know, we're kind of like therapists. We're on the phone or emailing with parents all the time saying, you're not crazy, you're not alone, and you're not the only person who is unhappy with what you're seeing right now. So that's kind of, that's step one. Um, But also, you know, we tell people, start small. You know, this does not have to go from zero to federal lawsuit, like from the the first step. Um, Sometimes it's just well-intentioned parents or well-intentioned teachers who like they see something, they got a handoff online, um, they don't really, oh, I didn't realize that this would be problematic. Um, and so I think it's like, it's sort of up to the parent to start to ask questions. And, you know, depending on the answer you get, you know, you could start to elevate the issue. If you don't get the right answer from a teacher, you can go to the, the principal, you can go to the superintendent, you can go to the school board. Um, I live in a very blue suburb. Um, I know the school board is definitely advocating a lot of the things that I don't like. And so um, to me, that's like, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to want to engage with me on some of these issues. And so, you know, that being said, I, like, like you said, I, I definitely encourage people to reach out to us because we want to, I mean, we spend all day, every day on the phone or emailing with people trying to figure out how do we get you to your right solution? I'm not trying to force somebody to litigate over a case that they don't want to, but um, what's the right answer for you? Um, and also, you know, is it, is this the right situation for you to stay in? I mean, we, obviously we've seen a huge number of people fleeing public schools, transferring to between private schools because they've realized that the education system that they thought was a good fit for their child initially is not the best fit now. And yeah. so, you know, keep an open mind. And actually, my last question, because we've talked a lot about parent revolt, I actually had a teacher reach out to me who was having an upcoming parent-teacher conference in a situation in which the child had said they wanted to be known by a certain name and pronoun but didn't want the parent to know and was getting direction from their principal that they could not share that information in the parent teacher conference. So literally they were going to have to have a conversation with the parent where everyone else in the school community knew that the child was being referred to as something else. And the only person that didn't know was the parent and the teacher yet felt that they would actually be violating their own boss's rules if they were to divulge this information. What do you think a a teacher in that situation should do? Yeah, this is is really problematic. There's not enough teacher support organizations out there um, to to work with them on this. We have friends at Southeastern Legal Foundation that have filed a number of lawsuits, I think in Missouri and Illinois over forced issues like this, where it's a district making them do something that they don't believe, uh, be it teacher training, compelled speech type stuff. But um, teachers are in a really rotten position too, um, because, you know, it's their job and it's, you know, they have tenure. And so it's, it's very messy. I mean, employment law is kind of like a whole separate nightmare, but um, yeah, this is, this is, we are hearing this uh, across the country as well. I just got an email over the weekend from some teachers in California who are in this exact situation. And some of them feel like I can't, I can't be in this. I have to leave the school system. I need to give up my pension because 
this is unconscionable what you're asking me to do. I'm violating kind of, I guess teachers don't take like a Hippocratic oath, but you know, kind of along that spectrum. But maybe they should. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they should. Maybe they should. Right. Nikki, you are doing amazing work. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And you can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, on, on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks again, Nikki. We really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you.